0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Drone Source, sponsored by Elsite. I'm Ben Gross, and I'd like to thank you for joining me and welcome you to our podcast. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Drone Source. Today with me is Jim Vandermeer, the CEO of AirGidity. Jim has been the founder and CEO of two successful technology startups funded by major venture firms and strategic partners, and has served on numerous company and organization governing boards. After time in academia as a professor of computer science at two Big Ten universities, Jim embarked on a prolific career of multidisciplinary product design with patents in computer architecture, data communications, optics, solar energy, spread spectrum technology, and aeronautics. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. That's quite the intro. Uh, I would really yeah. love, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit more about Jim. Tell me more about you know the background, about who Jim is, and tell me about AirGinity, what it is that you do
1: okay well uh jim as you've read said a bunch of different things in the course of uh, my career and one of the things i've always been interested in is is find trying to find a better way to do a vertical takeoff and landing uh, other than a helicopter it goes back a number of years when it really didn't have the tools that are available to us today and so that's something that uh i've actually taken a shot at a couple of times during my career and then finally Think we've hit on something that's a bit different than what other people have done in terms of uh, the technology going forward. So um, that's what I'm doing now. And Sorry, agility started about seven years ago when um, I came up with an idea. Subsequently, patented it and and recruited a former VP of R and D of mine from a previous company to join me, uh, Larry Young, and we started the company. And we're about a few weeks away from doing our first full-scale flights, uh, starting our flight programs for full-scale flights. We've been flying scale models and, of course, doing the usual uh, computational, computational fluid dynamics and that kind of investigations.
0: Tell me more about the flights. Tell me more about the background, how it started, how you choose to focus on cargo delivery. Tell me the whole story.
1: Okay. Well, car- cargo delivery... Um, I think is a is a real need. getting getting materials from one place to the other. one of one of the motivations for for me for doing this was that I've been involved in uh, mission aviation for a long period of time, one way or another. It's been a an interest of mine, and I always wanted to see if there's a better way we can get things from place point A to point B where there's no infrastructure, whether you can't land an airplane or you can't uh, can't land one safely most of the time. So that's sort of the way back background, how we got interested in this. Um, and so the cargo aspect of it was for that reason, primarily, uh, as opposed to carrying people, there are a lot of people that look at carrying people, it's also going to be an easier nut to crack um, in terms of the regulatory environment and stuff than, than carrying people. So um, anyway. We came up with, uh, or I came up with, the idea of something we now call a managed auto rotation, which is a technology that's patented that actually allows us to build an aircraft a lot simpler than other ones. It has a number of interesting characteristics. Um, It the current aircraft we have is um, carries about 500 pounds payload plus maybe 100 pounds fuel, 600 all total. You split it any way you want between fuel and and payload, and you get a range of uh, if you're carrying 500 pounds, you get a range of about 300 miles. So it's it's not a it's not an all electric one. It's a hybrid. It's driven by a turboprop. It's basically a very sophisticated gyroplane slash fixed wing aircraft. It's it's a combination of both. Um, so you want me to continue to talk about that, or
0: definitely, I want I want to hear everything you have to say about it.
1: Okay. So it operates on a on a bit of a different principle. It think of it as a as a multi copter. It has first of all, uh, it's um, got a wingspan of about twenty four feet. Uh, it's got six rotors on it that are specially designed rotors. So They're designed to auto rotate, and so they are nine foot rotors, uh, six four blades each. And the way the aircraft works is that when you take off, you take off like a multi-copter. We have electric motors that drive the motors on a relatively small amount of batteries. So you get up into the air and the prop is pushing you through, pulling you through the air. And as you fly forward, because of the nature of the rotors and because of the control system we have, the rotors start to consume less and less power until finally when you reach cruise, they require no power at all because they're in what's called auto-rotation. Auto-rotation is the state that a gyroplane normally flies in if you're familiar with a gyroplane which is typically operates this way except that these are individual blades that are fixed pitch and the rpms are controlled by the flight controller so that they control the pitch the role of the aircraft there are no ailerons on this particular aircraft at all so um all the attitude is controlled by the by the rpms itself and the and the controller knows it can control it so that the power for the to to get it to the point where the rotors require no power in fact as you fly forward you can put them into a little the aircraft into a teeny bit of a pitch and then start drawing power out of the rotors to recharge the batteries so you don't even need a generator on board to recharge the batteries now it happens that the turbo prop we have on board um has a generator so that's more efficient than charging it through the the rotors but they still can operate that so when you want to make a bank you increase the rpm on one side decrease it on the other when you increase it on one side you're putting power in and when you're decreasing on the other you're taking power out and you can manage that so it ends up being zero power net so as you cruise at 120 miles an hour which is what we cruise at um the rotors are spinning but the the if you were a pure auto if you're A pure gyro, they would be a little bit draggy because the rotors would have to be pitching back. But basically, as you're flying forward, there's a wing that these are basically mounted to that starts to carry some of the load. By the time you're cruising, it's carrying about 60% of the load, and the rotors are carrying about 40% of the load. So they are now unloaded, and they fly very efficiently. So we have the efficiency, basically, of a fixed-wing aircraft. But a, a very simple aircraft, it doesn't have what a lot, of, there's nothing that tilts or pitches that change or anything like that. So the, the benefit of what we call managed auto rotation is that it's very, that it's simplicity. And simplicity means that generally it weighs less because there are less things you have to add to make this work. It means that it's more reliable because there's less things that can fail it yeah and uh, it's actually less less service because there are less things. We have high-power electric motors on the aircraft and a 3,000-hour TBO um, turboprop. So it means you have uh, less service to be concerned about. And uh, all of that pays off in the end in both operating costs and in capital costs when we get started. And it's not that big of an aircraft either for the weight because because of the efficiencies, the weight efficiencies. Um, you have a a good payload to uh, total weight ratio.
0: So there's two questions that are obvious follow-ups is, first of all, how long did it take for all this design work and planning and engineering and execution to, you said you're just about ready to start the full flights coming up very soon. So how long did this entire process take is the first question. And the second question is, how does a professor of computer science get involved in aerodynamics <laughs> yeah, and yeah. engines and rotor loads and managed auto rotation? Yeah,
1: yeah. How, how does that happen? Well, let me, let me answer the, the second question first. Um, okay. Yes. I was a professor of computer science. I taught at uh, Penn state. I taught at the university of Illinois. And, um, but even back then I had an interest in this uh uh, I, you know i'm a low hour aviator myself and um, one one year because of my level of interest i i joined the helicopter society which is now called the vertical flight society and i went to my alma mater one summer and took graduate course in helicopter design uh at penn state the penn state has a, a rotorcraft uh, institute there so i i I've, I've been educated at this it didn't it didn't just happen by osmosis or something i actually did take some courses on it though of course there's been a lot of um time between now and then uh when i had that background but in any case i've got a i've got a a a library full of uh, books about helicopters so it's it's not just something that you know fell off the shelf or something And the first question I've already forgotten, trying to answer the second one. Oh, how long it took? Exactly. Uh, Add this entire process. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. So well, when we st- I, we started this uh seven years ago, it has been a while. Um, when Laurie, my partner, signed up um to, to join in this enterprise. Uh we thought, well, this'll take this will take a few years and we'll you know have something flying. Well. Actually, we did have something flying uh, reasonably quickly, but it was a scale model. And it's taken, we're on our third iteration, our third generation of, of aircraft. The first generation was um, a shot at, uh, it didn't actually have any wings on that, it was just the auto drivers. And, and we built a scale model, about a 25% scale model of what we have now. And it flew quite well, um, but not nearly as efficiently as we wanted it to. And uh, we didn't have all the tools then that we have now, meaning all the CFD tools and that kind of stuff. We use uh, STAR-CCM, which is the premier tool in the uh, computational fluid dynamics market to do the analyses and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the second generation we built, we learned from the first. And that aircraft has been flying for a good while. It flies extremely well, has zero control surfaces on it, just is controlled strictly by the rotors. Uh, we, we uh, the the third generation is actually very very similar to the first. The main difference is the rotor, which was down low be, because of some aerodynamic reasons. We we're able to get the back rotors, we we're able to get them back up high, so we wouldn't be chopping people's legs off when the when the when the aircraft landed or something. So they're all now out of the way of human people. Um, so the third generation is a scale model. We have is is identical to the big scale air full-scale aircraft we have as a prototype this is not the unit we'll go to production with we've learned a lot even in building the prototype we had our first prototype th- we've had the prototype for almost a year um and have been working on getting it fit for for flying and making modifications and changes and and so on so the first the first uh, uh um Flights are scheduled uh, actually within a couple of couple of weeks. We'll have the first flights. So So that's so it took a while. We got it. It's going to take a lot longer going forward too. It's going to take quite a while to get. I think this whole thing into the market. A couple more years at least.
0: Well, start off with. I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I say that uh, we appreciate the decision to not have rotors cut off our legs. I think that was a (laughs) smart choice, and thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I would I, I'd like to discuss if you'd um you know uh this tool, all right, that you're building this right. cargo aircraft that you're able to you know very great as you mentioned power to weight ratio. Excuse me, power to uh did with this very good uh cargo to weight ratio and this very efficient uh, power train with the rotors and everything. What exactly do you envision as the goal, the end goal for this? Where do you see this going? Do you see this as a logistics tool, as a delivery tool? You're going to start working with UPS and FedEx. Where are you taking this?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's lots of applications, and you know, we have to differentiate what's reasonable to happen to begin with with what's long term. Um, a lot of people are focusing on the US, certainly for the uh Uh, advanced mobility uh, taxi type of business. And some are focusing on the cargo, but the U S first of all, is the cargo systems in the U S are very highly rationalized. Um, you know, it's going to be hard to add a lot of value to that system. Um, and it's also highly regulated. So we, most of our opportunities we felt from the beginning are going to be, um, in areas that are not in the, we call them the core, um, highly rationalized logistics systems to start with. There are lots of opportunities that will develop, I believe, in the developing world for uh, logistics deliveries uh, as time goes on. But the initial ones, I think, are going to be more in areas like the military, where there's a, a dramatic proved need for forward operating base supply, resupply, for humanitarian relief in situations where you can't get with normal aircraft, remember, of course, this is a vertical takeoff, landing aircraft, where you can get to situations which is hard to, you know, helicopters can serve. This will be an adjunct to the helicopters. It's certainly, not going to replace them uh, full bore because, uh, first of all, we're not carrying people. One of the reasons. So th- those are those are a couple of the areas that we see there are there are areas of spe- specific need that uh, things like um, servicing uh, postal needs in some of the some of the countries that have come to us in South America that are Andes types of locations where they need to get materially around from one place to another. And right now, the only way to do that is getting it up through winding roads through the mountains. And this would be great for that. We, uh, Northern Canada, the First Nations is certainly... An opportunity up there to move material and postal supplies from one place to another in the tundra up there. And there are a number of other uh, island opportunities we've identified. I think eventually this is going to be a great tool for getting um, material around in island nations um, going from one place to the other to get things there timely. uh, That's things that might be perishable or things that are time sensitive in particular. I don't think it's going to become the um, replacement for ships or anything like that—it'll be be an adjunct to it. Servicing offshore rigs is another area where helicopters do it a good job right now. But this can do it for materials in particular. It can do it a lot less expensively and quickly and more reasonably. Uh, it's sort of the same sort of model as the forward operating base supplies, where you can service them with helicopters. But they typically have to be up armored and and uh, and escorted, and people's lives are at risk. When you do that, whereas bringing something like this in for delivery, uh, and then uh, uh, you know these people's lives are not at risk when you're when you're doing that. So that's sort of a sort of an overview of uh, to begin with. Um, it's going to be, like I mentioned, the military and humanitarian aid and and so special cases. Long term, I think uh, we have opportunities in places like take the developing world, take take Africa as an example. As you probably know, Africa had uh, back, you know, in the 15 years ago, the, the phone penetration in Africa was like 2% landline. When cell phones came in, it, the communications took off like a like a rocket. Right now, over 90% of every African adult has a phone. And that's just in some number of years. And the reason is they didn't have to bring, bring in the infrastructure. Instead, they use microgrids and cell towers in the villages. There are four hundred thousand villages in Africa, and you might know that less than half the roads are passable year-round in Africa. So transportation is is a real issue in Africa. There's trillions and trillions of dollars that's going to have to be invested in 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 Africa uh, to just to, to upgrade the infrastructure to where you can have a regular regular commerce with with regular vehicles. The primary mode of transportation. Uh, excuse me delivery right now is motorbikes And you get things from villages to villages if you have an instrument like ours that will start presumably from business to business from city to city or from little larger villages a little larger villages with a with a, a, a cargo companies using them to deliver goods but eventually I think they'll they'll get to the point where they'd be able to deliver uh, goods to to villages, or whether they be postal goods or whether one of the interesting things is right now it's so expensive that it's estimated that fifty three percent of the cost of delivering goods is logistics costs in in Africa. So that's a big nut to, that you got a chance to, to to reduce and to help people's lives get better. Once you have reliable transportation to villages you can now do economic development now people can get supplies do do businesses send them back out again and do it economically so i don't see anything like this happening in the in the short term but it's a goal that we have in our minds that say you know this is what we envision this would be a fantastic way to have to avoid all this infrastructure and and bring the world closer together economically uh, and otherwise so that's sort of the vision going forward
0: Question: If you don't mind, you mentioned earlier operating in South America, flying in the Andes right. mountains, and right. how well will your aim, f- will your airframe operate in the thinner air present in the mountains? All right, uh, your revolutionary uh, rotor system that you mentioned before, much right. more efficient, mm-hmm. much more. Obviously, right. the thin air is going to make a difference here. No,
1: right. Right, it, it will, and and your payloads as you go up higher, your payloads uh, for vertical takeoff and landing are going to have to be, um, because vertical takeoff and landing is the primary limitation of what your payload is. So as you get higher and higher, uh, you're not going to be able to carry as much uh, uh, payload. Um, but the but the service limit is you know right now um, having mentioned the the Andes, we probably wouldn't be able to service the ones that are. much above 10,000 feet uh, at this particular point in time. But, uh, you know, as time goes, we're not going to be doing that right away anyway. (laughs) So, you know, there's time to to get from here to there. But there's no reason why it wouldn't be any different than a fixed-wing aircraft in terms of how it can fly.
0: In our conversation uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that you actually don't see the United States as an area in which, in the short term, you see right. as a developing opportunity for air agility. Can you explain right. why?
1: Yeah, there, there's two reasons. the The principal reason is that I don't think there's a market for the kind of thing we have that's that's justifiable in terms of the uh, the cost. And the 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 the. the it, I mean, we. It's not like we're not interested. In, we, we have an ongoing. Well, I should say we've had conversations with the logistics suppliers in the US as well as other places. We've had those conversations and they they have opportunities that they envision, but they're not they're not major opportunities they would use in aircraft like this right now. And the reason is because the the uh, logistics system is very well rationalized. I mean, people have spent a lot of time and money and you know, they're very sophisticated uh uh, software programs to control the logistics and and uh, what we would bring would be incremental and probably certainly difficult to justify at this level of, of cost when we're first coming into the market. Now, when the when the market matures, uh, that's probably going to be a different story. And uh, so we'll let somebody else blaze that in the U.S. That plus the fact that the regulatory environment in the U.S. is and uh, you know we still trying to sort how everything is. So. There's not there's not a short-term opportunity there because there isn't even you know it's not even defined. Whereas in some of the other countries, they're they're a little more open to uh, to um, being flexible. I guess is the word to use. So, and and the opportunities are, are I think certainly if you compare something like the U.S. to to Africa, the, the I think there's trillion-dollar opportunity in Africa. I don't see that in the U.S.
0: It's um, something that we've noticed is that logistics in Africa, all right, pose a significant challenge to anyone trying to operate right, there. Right, right. All right. Does Airjudy have some sort of response to this?
1: No, I remember I, I differentiated between short term and long term. The the I don't see anything like we have describing. I, I describe this as a vision. Which means it isn't it isn't on the horizon anytime soon. I think Africa right now is just so splintered in terms of the logistics. There are some companies like Zipline are doing a great job in in, in sort of establishing uh, the the uh, the models that one like us would eventually follow. I think our our view would be probably be we will follow after the the parcel people get well established and and the and the regulatory environment is starting to get set up and so on. I think I think our opportunities are short-term are more... I also mentioned, too, things like island nations. We're getting from one island to another, getting things across like that. But no, we don't have any special... I mean, we've talked to people. We've looked at opportunities in Africa. But uh, I think short-term, those are not uh, forthcoming.
0: I'd like to finish up with a question that I ask all my guests. and. I would really like to hear your vision, as you mentioned before, your vision of where you see the drone market headed in two, five, 10 years from now. Where do you see things headed? What opportunities do you see opening up? Where, where are we headed? What's going on? What's going to happen?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. There's there's a lot of different things happening in the in the quote drone market. That's a pretty inclusive term it covers all kinds of different applications as you know everything from you know the uses that are happening now for everything from inspection of uh, whatever to mapping to to um c- carrying parcels that's starting at least um in the u.s i mean in the in the world and um uh, so it's gonna it's it's gonna be very diverse i think the more you get into it you're gonna have you're gonna have people that are doing for example in the cargo field you're gonna have people who are doing heavy stuff which are depot to depot type things um there are a number of people right now that are sort of specifying the depot to depot drones for carrying cargo we may end up in that market or not but i think our principal opportunity is to places which don't have depots from we may go depot to somewhere else or from somewhere else to somewhere else but basically all we need is fuel we don't need to have a lot of uh other capabilities so the market uh, market as a whole is going to certainly grow um i I've, I've shared our vision of places like africa that's the way i hopefully we're going to be able to to uh create some real Economic opportunities with a, with an infrastructure like this. <clears throat> Excuse me, things. So many fields you can think of: firefighting, agricultural. You name it. It's there. There's not a lot of areas that won't be touched by the opportunity to to use a basically unmanned um, aircraft to facilitate things.
0: All right, amazing! Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I want to thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It was great having you. Thank you.
1: It's good being here. Appreciate it.
0: And I want to thank everyone for listening in. And I'll join you on the next episode of Drone Source. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by Elsite. Elsite helps drone companies operate beyond the visual line of sight, overcome regulatory challenges, and scale business through integrated connectivity solutions. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in our next episode of Drone
1: Source.